Welcome to the Less Doing Podcast, where you will learn how to start living more by doing less. Let me help you optimize, automate, and outsource your entire life so you can focus on doing the things you love. Now here's your host, Ari Mizell. Hey everyone, it's Ari. So the episode you're about to hear now was recorded live and raw, it is unedited, at our recent Less Doing Los Angeles event. The event included about 50 amazing entrepreneurs, many of whom are in the Less Doing Leaders coaching program. We had world-class speakers and the theme of the event was perfect your process. So we had experts across several different genres and every talk was given as a fireside chat style conversation. So again, they're unedited. They're, these episodes are explicit. We are an explicit podcast, but these were uh, a little more explicit in some cases than others. So fair warning. And if you want to find out more about what we do at a Less Doing Live event, after you listen to this episode, go to lessdoing.com and click on our live events button. Now enjoy the episode. All right, so we're talking with Jordan Harfinger, uh, formerly of The Art of Charm. Some of you might know him from that. It's one of the, probably one of the most successful podcasts ever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, has uh, rebranded, re-handed, what are we, how are we calling it? Uh, started all the fuck over again? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can I say that? Yeah, I know. Okay. Technical okay. terms. Yeah. If you want to go technical. I want to confuse anybody with jargon. So what's, what is the, for, for people who have been fans of yours, or what's, right. the, what's the new show called? The new show is called The Jordan Harbinger Show. It's really kind of a creative title based solely on the fact that I'm shit at naming things. But I also figured if I can't name something after myself right now, I have to pick a crap name like Live Your Best Life Podcast and all the suggestions that other people have. And I do not want to be lumped in. On like a self-help life coachy angle, sorry, self-help life coaches, but I just can't do it anymore. So I was like, I have to kind of draw a line in the sand in the branding. And the only way to do that was to, in my opinion, name it after myself at this point. Because <laughs> I just could not, there's no other name that would encompass what I want to, the show to be. Because I picked the last one, Art of Charm, and we all see how that ended up. And I regretted that brand name for so many years. I just didn't want to make that mistake again. Well, and so I think that's worth, as part of your intro, it's worth explaining why, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, you're not a pickup artist. Right, yeah. As yeah. evidenced by my wife being around here like that, those days are long gone. And... <laughs> got her. I don't know why that's funny. You got her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what works. But like, you know. It worked at least once. It worked one time. And, and, and that's what counts. But the, the idea is that you know, you're know you stuck with whatever brand you choose, you're stuck with whatever brand that you pick, and if you pick your brand when you're 26, like I did, and then you're 38, you're, and you're still doing that, you know, and you have people that won't let you just change the name in the middle of your business, like, you're in trouble. You know, you have to rebrand, and rebranding is like steering an oil tanker. You can't just be like, hard left. You know, that thing turns one degree every whatever ships do, and a business is even slower, I would say. Yeah. So you have to be pretty careful with that, because, you can be less, less less doing, and then you're like, oh, actually, I want to teach sports medicine. Well, okay, that's not going to work for you. You have to figure this out, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Luckily, yeah. your evolution has been virtually non-existent. Yeah, so totally, can... totally fine. Flatline. <laughs> um, so, when you were doing the art of charm, or, or just sort of your background in general, right? You, sure. you, you. Uh, 
uh, are not like a profiler, right? Like, like, that's like Sharia. Sh I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. Right, right exactly. That would step on Sharia. No, and I want to. I mean, this is worth making the link, just because I, I feel like you, it's a similar field, but it's sort of two different sides of the of the coin. Yes. Way. So, so, and it's not social engineering, which I, I mean, that's a fair bit of what I teach my military and intelligence clients for sure. Okay, well, let's talk about so the, that. The, there is a black hat angle to that, but it's it's reserved for, it's not taught to single dudes. It's taught to, well, unless they're coincidentally single, but it's mostly taught to military and intelligence agents and people in those types of fields. And so I do reserve that. In fact, I got my start doing social engineering at age 13, 14, working with the FBI before I could drive, cloning cell phones, tapping, wiretapping stuff, figuring out kind of, some crappy tech that you get into when you're an only child and you're bored and your parents are never home. So like, that's how I got started. I mean, I was catching pedophiles on the internet on AOL chat rooms, in AOL chat rooms. So like, I started with social engineering. I wasn't like, let me figure out this whole women thing. I was like, girls are yucky, so are pedophiles. Like, <laughs> I'm only gonna catch one of them, probably not gonna be women, so let's start with pedophiles. So just uh, because, well, by show of hands, how many people know Jordan's background? Okay, good. Then we're going to talk about it because it's it's fantastic. Were you uh, catching pedophiles with that haircut? Uh, no, I, okay. I had an okay. even worse haircut than I do now. <laughs> believe it or not. So this was this was I mean twenty. I mean, we're talking about twenty five years ago. Or fifteen years. Uh, yeah, I was no, 2014, So how long? Yeah. Yeah, twenty five years ago, yeah. right? So like, I mean. AOL chat rooms. Yeah. Right? So how, how, I mean. Like five hours free. Yeah. Up against the limit. Right. Throw in a CD hours. and meet a pedophile. Right. So how, how, um, <laughs> yeah. how Should did, how did, I mean, you, how did you stumble into that? Well, what was going on was I, I worked at a movie theater and the movie theater was owned by the owner of the Detroit Red Wings daughter. And so this is one of the richest families in the world, actually. And so he would show up to the Mike Gillis, one of the Red Wings, would show up at this movie theater, and he was probably justifiably paranoid, and he was convinced that people were gonna come after him. So he had a private security company that worked only in his office, and the theater had some loss and some fraud and some other stuff, and so he put his security agents in there because those were the only people that he trusted. Those security agents were bored of tears. They're working in a freaking movie theater. You know, these are like ex-Green Berets. They're freaking standing in a movie theater watching for people stealing gummy bears. So I start talking with this guy and he finds out I can make websites. And he's like, whoa, you know, eventually every company's gonna wanna have a web presence. And I was like, yeah, thank you, you know, for understanding this. So I was making a website for the security company. And he's like, look, I'm not allowed to hire you because I work for Mike Illich. So what I can do is teach you martial arts and stuff like that, real stuff, not this fake karate that you learn in like dojos that allow 15, 16 year old kids to take part. And so I said, great, no problem, I'm, I'm down. Fair trade of services. So I was the only white guy that ever went to that office. And I was the only white guy at the security company eventually. And so what they started having me do was drive and they would have me drive the client. So if it was like Ice Cube or like Puff Daddy or some other R&B singer, I was always driving because if you are in Detroit and you're driving and you're a white dude, nobody messes with you. You don't get pulled over, you won't switch your car, you can park in certain places. I had a clean record, which is more than I could say for half the guys that I worked with. So I was driving and doing all the tech. And I had an SUV, that was probably the key factor. So everyone could fit in my car. 
And so I eventually started to work a lot with the security company, working on some of the social engineering, helping out Mike Illich's security company with tech stuff because it was all new to them. Uh, at least the online stuff was all new to them. And then one day uh, he's like, well, you know, how do you know all this internet stuff? I was talking about it. I can't remember exactly how it came up, but I said, yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, I wish I could, they were asking me questions that you ask young guys like, oh, how, how the girls treat me? And I was like, I don't know what you're even talking about. Like, I, I'm a computer guy. Like I'm an indoor kid. You know, I don't have that type of concern in my life. And he's like, oh, well, you know what you should do? You should make one of those online screen names that you're talking about that you showed us, but you should make one that is like a girl. And then you'll see how guys talk to girls and you could just use that to stand out. And I thought, that's genius. So I made a profile that was a girl and I thought this is going to be really enlightening. And what happened was, unfortunately, it was very enlightening. What happened was a bunch of creepy dudes who were like 40 were starting to hit the inbox and the instant messenger. And I thought, oh, this is so funny. Look at all these loser guys hitting on this 14 year old girl. And so I told my boss about it, Mike Illich is a security guy. And he's like, this is not, I know you think it's funny because you're 15, 16 years old. This is like criminal behavior. This isn't just like funny, look at this weird old guy hitting on girls. This is criminal behavior. I never, of course, thought about it like that. And he goes, show me what you're talking about. So the next time I came in, I printed off all these transcripts of all these things that people were saying. And he's like, yeah, we have to call the police. Like you can't, this is not okay. So we called the cops and they went, oh, okay. So uh, you're in uh, Troy, Michigan. And I was like, well, I'm in Detroit, but you know, I live in Birmingham and the America Online, I called in and their server's in Virginia and they were like, uh, so call the police in Virginia. So I called Virginia and they're like, yeah, but you're over here. So, and nobody could figure out where the crime was taking place. Clearly this was not okay, but nobody could figure out where the crime was. So my boss goes, screw this, let's call the FBI. So he calls our, his, his friend at the FBI and they're like, oh, uh, we don't have a computer or cyber crime division because it's 1996. So we have to fax this to Washington and figure out what, how to even handle this? Because if we're, we have jurisdiction over our office here in Detroit, the field office, but like, is it Virginia? Is it, where, what's going on? So DC gets involved and they're like, oh, there are perverts on the internet. Yeah, that's unusual. I guess that makes sense though. What do we do about this? And so they basically just had used this account as a honeypot because it already had like 40, 50 guys hitting it up like every day. And so what we decided to do was bring one of the guys from Troy, where I was located, and have him drive across, one of the pervert dudes, have him drive across state lines to Ohio, which is like 40 minutes away, and they would just wait for him there and arrest him. So we did that, and then we did it again, and again, and again, and again. And I wasn't even like involved at this point, because I, I, what am I gonna do, stand there and be like, ha, ah. you know? <laughs> so, I mean, I would love Man, to have done that. Yeah, like, sucker, ah, ah, dude. Yeah, but <laughs> there was none of that. And so I just basically would like have them in there, hand over the conversation to a female agent in DC. They would lure the guy over state lines. Ohio Detroit field offices would work with local PD to catch them. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever done because my real life involves like scraping gummy bears off of floors and movie screens. This is really cool. So uh, as I started getting more and more involved in that, I started to really enjoy the process and feel like there was more to life than popcorn and downloading video games illegally on the internet which also was a bad look, also working with the FBI. So I, I had a cool access to really cool tech at that point too. Cellular phones were brand new. And a lot of my friends were like, hey, if you crack open a cell phone, you can 
listen to other people's conversations by reprogramming an analog phone. And I went, okay, how hard can this be? So I started doing that and I started listening to conversations. And as a kid, if you guys remember this, as a kid, adults are all like, they feed you, yell at you, give you homework, drive you places, pretty much that's it. Your kids view you like that. I mean, Most likely. Yeah. And that's basically like the case, right? But for me, I was listening to conversations and I would hear people like getting a divorce, fighting with their wife, talking to their mom. And I was like, oh, adults are three-dimensional humans that have real problems just like me. I thought I was the only person who had like emotions and stuff, you know, because you're a kid. You don't really get it. And so that got me really interested in human nature to a degree that was probably in retrospect a little bit unhealthy because since I was an only child, all I did was listen to other people's phone conversations, go to work, do this martial arts stuff, work for the security company. That was like my entire life. Didn't care about school, obsessed with people, human nature, motivation, and that got me into trouble because at this point I'm like, oh, I can do whatever I want. Like nobody can stop me and look at, I can, hack these phones and like you know all this stuff. and I started just getting more and more trouble in terms of like selling the clone cell phones you know my parents are like well, how do you have money you work in a movie theater you work for a security company as a volunteer like what's going on so eventually my contact at the FBI was like dude you're going to get caught and you're going to go to jail but you're you should not be doing this like you're 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 better than this in theory and uh, he he had more choice words than that but that kind of woke me up, you know, but I, I never really lost my appetite for learning about human nature and motivation. It's just that what everybody else found out 10 plus years later was, oh, hey, Jordan teaches this to guys who want to meet people or like people want to be more outgoing. But I started off as a social engineer, as a white slash gray hat slash black hat, you know, hacker essentially of humans. And that actually is, in my opinion, more interesting especially now that I'm looking at having kids, like I'm not really using this for what I was using it for in my 20s. Let your imagination run wild with that. <laughs> so, you know, that stuff for me was really interesting and still is. And I think it's very useful because regardless of whatever company you have, whatever like military application, people are using this against you all the time, whether they're trying to sell you something or they're trying to break into your computers or they're trying to break into your house. So. This is, this is a never-ending kind of source of excitement and wonder for me. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, so how, and well, another thing that's worth pointing out is that, the, I mean, when I said that Art of Charm is probably one of the most popular podcasts of all time, it really is. I mean, the numbers are kind of astounding of what Jordan was able to achieve without ever having any paid advertising or anything like that, right? So. How, how much of what you learn and what you do sort of plays out in the way that you, that you market and sell? So I don't, it's, it's kind of ironic actually. I do not lie or trick people into buying things because I know how it feels and I also know how easy it is. And I also think that the short, the sh con men play the short game. They will try to get your money, run. They will try to, and I, Here's a, here's a way that, that I can phrase this perfectly. So I recently interviewed this guy who's a psychopath, okay? And the way he found out he was a psychopath, he's a brain scientist, was because he was doing a brain scan experiment and he needed a control group. So he got a bunch of his family and friends together, including himself, did brain scans and went, oh shit, one of my friends is a psychopath, look at this brain. So they de-anonymized the study and he, they're like, this is your brain. And he's like, fuck out of here. 
<laughs> and they're like, no, it's your brain. So he found out that he himself was a psychopath, had been, of course, his whole life, goes and tells his wife, and she's like, yeah, I mean, that doesn't surprise me at all, which should have been disconcerting for both of them. <laughs> and uh, so he finds out, like, look, this, this is my whole life. My things I've done in my past totally make sense now. And the reason that this was so interesting for me, that his answer to this question was so interesting, was because what he said was, you know, because I said, oh, but you're so nice. You know, people must all the time say, oh, you're such a nice guy. How can you be a psychopath? Because our image of psycho psychopathy is violent and antisocial. And he goes, yeah, those are dumb psychopaths. He goes, smart psychopaths, we all know. And I love that he included himself in this. <laughs> creepy, extra, extra creepy. He goes, it's better. It's just fucking more effective for me to be really nice to people and be really charming. And I was like, yikes, right? <laughs> so functionally speaking, you can play the short game. You can lie to people. You can take their money and run. But it's beneficial. If One, it's good for sleeping at night. You can live with yourself. But long game, and Joe Polish and everybody else who markets knows this, long game, it's better to be good to people because you don't have to worry about did I grab up all my loose ends? Did I get caught? If you refer someone to a competitor and it serves them really well, like you build trust and you can't really buy that or replace that. And so for me, marketing is, I will produce thousands of hours of free content on the Jordan Harbinger show or whatever I do. And I will simply say, don't buy anything from me. Just try this stuff. And if this stuff works for you, then you can decide to purchase. I don't have to do like, well, the real secret is in my book. Like, I don't do that. I realize that if I build enough trust, then I don't have to do any of that crap. And so the way that I market is by giving away so much free stuff. And I, I think it was uh, Taki, you said your free stuff should be better than other people's paid stuff. Absolutely. Not only free and, and better, but more if you can, right? And that's what I do is like content machine. If anything, I don't market enough because I don't have paid ad funnels and stuff like that. I don't, I never bothered with that. I just rely on the quality of the craft generating a lot of word of mouth. That has its limits. I don't think anybody should do that. And I think Joe was one of the first people who was like, you know, people who brag about never having to buy ads, cool, but you're just leaving all this money on the table because you don't buy ads. And that's totally true. You know, you can be as awesome as you want to be, but at some point there's like this extra layer that you can only hit with quality marketing and advertising. But the way that it is done is always viewed as long form because I, I think of this as the first 10 years of my career have already maybe gone by, but I'm maybe 25% through my career as a broadcaster interviewer. So if I'm gonna do something that maybe gets me called out in a year, it's not worth it, right? Because look at a politician and I do not plan on running for office where that ship has sailed, but if, you find something, some dirt on somebody, that it's coming out. So I'm thinking, well, I don't know what I'm gonna be doing in 10, 20 years in terms of my career. So it's not worth it to be like, yeah, I made 20 extra grand this month being a jerk online or scamming people or having crappy marketing or like not offering refunds. So anything that I do, I always view as long-term. If people have a problem with something that, that's done, even if it's totally their fault, I always like to be extra reasonable, just give them the money back, make sure every customer is satisfied or don't deal with them at all. And I, I advise that. Just having been in the game for like 13, 15 years now, there's never been one time where I'm like, I'm so glad that I dug in and had a huge public argument with that person and then didn't give him a refund. Like that has never happened. It's always been like, why did I even waste 10 seconds extra on this? And your marketing should reflect that too. 
you know, you meet people that have these great businesses and you look at their marketing and you get this icky feeling. And then they're like, oh yeah, my marketing guys, you know, they did this or something. And you're just like, yeah, but this has your face on it. You know, so I feel like you should be very careful with your brand, knowing that everyone associates it with you. And that was one of the problems I had with, with my old brand was nobody knew that there were other partners in the business. So any dumb crap that happened was always on my shoulders. And so that was one of the reasons that I, I made sure to rebrand as myself, because now I have the ultimate responsibility and control over what that messaging is. Do you think that the, your skill set helps you to be a better interviewer? Oh yeah, absolutely. In Definitely. what way? Like what you know? So I can generally. I'm not saying I'm a human lie detector by any stretch, but I can tell when people are hiding the ball, when people aren't giving the full story. I can see when people are embarrassed about something. Um, I can look at things like Cherie's going to probably talk about where you can look at somebody and you're like, oh, okay, this person has these particular little insecurities. Maybe I want to push on those a little bit and get some good stuff out of it. Maybe I don't want to push on those because I don't want them to shut down. So you have to be able to read nonverbal communication like a boss. If you're going to interview people, you cannot be like, I have really good questions. Nobody cares about your questions, especially in your questions. If they're not evolving during the interview, you're not doing your job anyway. Congratulations, you're a robot. You know, if you just have a list of questions, that's not what an interviewer does. That's that's what a Android can do. You know, speaking of automating all of us, uh, you don't need to be there if you're not reading the other person and they're not reading their emotions. You're not reading their vocal tonality. You're not going into some sort of emotional tangent with them. You're not extracting value. You're not pushing back. Like a lot of what I learned about interviewing, I learned from interrogation. Not being interrogated, but watching other people do it and learning, taking courses on it, you know, with the cops and the FBI and stuff like that. And also with some of the intelligence agency stuff, learning how those guys read people and more importantly, how they, the mistakes that they make. Looking at, it's kind of scary looking at some of the interrogators that are like the best trained people and you're thinking like, how did you blow that? Or like, how are you... Uh, interrogating Al Qaeda, but like you can't get along with your 17 year old daughter. Like that is a little scary because you have to be able to build trust with these people. And it's like every, it's almost like everybody just watched a bunch of cop movies and was like, all right, I'm going to be really rude. It's like, <laughs> what are you doing? So thankfully, there are people that are really good at those jobs that I was able to learn from over a period of years. It's really not easy. And so being an interviewer is the only difference between me. And somebody who's like interrogating a suspect is I'm glad to be in front of my guest. I want them to feel comfortable instead of uncomfortable. And that's pretty much it. Well, um, basically my mission is the same thing to get so, value out of them. So, uh, and obviously not everybody's interviewing people, but I mean, you're having conversations sure. where you, you know, employees and team members and things like that, and customers. Mm -hmm. What are some of the uh, shortcuts maybe, I guess, in terms of what people should be looking for and how they can read people better? Yeah, I mean, I would love to be like, step one, look at their eyes. But all, the, the good news is, or the bad news maybe, is that all this recent science shows that all these things like, oh, if they look up into the rut, that stuff is baloney and it's not accurate. And I really hope that nobody's gonna come up and be teaching that kind of thing because otherwise I'm embarrassed. <laughs> oh man. And damaged. <laughs> um, but a lot of these like shortcut bits are just not true. And what it comes down to is building trust and rapport. And the, what's, what I think is the good news, since I should have started with that most likely, is that all of us know how to have a regular conversation and build trust with people. The primary difference between that and, and interviews slash interrogation slash 
rapport building is you're probably not used to making it so much about the other person. You're probably used to talking about yourself. That's really the primary difference. So if you find yourself like if, if this is what you sound like when you're talking with someone else trying to elicit information, you're talking way too much. So you're trying to get information out of me, so I'm going to be an open book. But if I were trying to get information out of you, I would be talking like one-tenth as much as, as you or one-tenth as much as I am right now. So some tricks, if you will, would be don't fill silence. Let other people fill the silence. And we've all kind of experienced that, right? We call it awkward silence. If you are not made uncomfortable by that, let that vacuum be filled by the other party. So um, talking with Barbara Boxer yesterday, the former senator, I was interviewing her and she was didn't want to talk about something. And so I just sat there and stared at her for a minute and then she just kept talking and then she stopped and I just stared at her longer and she just kept talking. This is a woman who's very experienced. This is clearly not the first difficult conversation that Barbara Boxer has ever had. With, and she's talked to people that are a million times more powerful than I am in a freaking conference room studio in Beverly Hills. So don't fill silence. Let the other party fill silence. And that awkward sense of, um, I guess, that awkward sense of like a pull towards the middle of the conversation. Uh, lean into it, don't lean away. So people will be like, I'm not gonna talk now. And the other party's like, fine, I'm gonna shut down. And you're like, shit, Jordan said, let them fill the silence. Really what we wanna do is be very interested in what they have to say, but not just do all the talking ourselves. Does that distinction kind of make sense? Because I think a lot of people go, let them fill the silence, they shut down. Or they're like, be really interested in what they have to say. And then they never shut up and the other party never really gets to talk. Or they say two words and you finish it for them and you keep going. Obviously, if an interrogator is never going to do that, but an interviewer should also not do that. And I spent years of my interviewing career talking, and it's like, why did the guest even show up? And that is a huge mistake. But we do that with our family. We do that with our friends. We do that with employees. If you're a, a good speaker, there's a really good chance that other people in your life don't feel heard around you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes? Heard around you. Yeah. Because you're not listening. And it's not that you're a bad person or that you're a bad listener. It's that you're doing all the talking. And that's super common. Most people really like people like that. They just don't feel liked by people like that. Exactly. Um, so, and also, that that's, I mean, obviously, if you, you get into like a cycle where you're both just trying to not like fill the silence, right? Nobody, so that's, that's, that, that never happened. I yeah. can tell you, like, whenever, yes, thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> so many people are like, oh. Uh, well, I heard this trick. Don't don't fill the silence. So I'm not going to talk either. <laughs> I've never in my entire like decade plus long career interviewing had somebody be like, "Oh, it's a stare down." <laughs> it's somebody has more status and power in the situation. So it's not that I won't say anything, but if I'm like, "Oh, tell me more about that," and you're like, "No, I'm not going to talk about that," I'll be like, "Oh, why are you are you uncomfortable talking about this?" And you'll be like. No, I just don't want to fill this. I mean, I'm gonna win eventually because it's my it's my show. I, I've taken control of the surroundings in certain ways that make you feel hopefully comfortable enough to open up, not commanded. In not like the, I'm not demanding you open up. I'm inviting you to do it. You want to fill the silence. I don't care how many books you've read. I'm like, don't give up any words. Like if you have a adversarial relationship with the person you're talking to, you already lost. Right, so my guests aren't coming in like, I'm not gonna tell Jordan shit. <laughs> it's gonna be a terrible show. They're like, all right, I'm, they wanna be comfortable. And if you're talking with your kids, chances are that, well, they should wanna talk. If they're in trouble, they might wanna be quiet. 
you probably know that the best way to handle that or one of the better ways to handle that is not to be like, I'm going to make sure they're afraid to talk. You know, you want to like ease it out of them. Emotionally, maybe a little harder, but you want to ease it out of them. Same thing with a, an employee. If they are screwing up, yeah, you probably want to let them have it, but like, is that effective? Probably not. So, you want to make yeah. sure that they feel comfortable. Comfort is a huge component of it. And, and of the show, it's, it is as well. People always go, oh, why don't you do your interviews in person? Isn't it better? Sometimes. But sometimes I like people to be at home in their pajamas. That, and they're like, oh, you should record the video. No, I want them to be like, oh, thank God. I don't have to put on makeup or anything. I don't have to worry about my hair. I want that. People are much more comfortable having a phone conversation with a friend than they are with hot lights on them. And it's like, oh, don't cross your legs funny or your package is going to show. Tell me something vulnerable. <laughs> That's not what I want, right? I don't want to do that. But okay, so then then is it that simple in terms of creating like a comfortable environment? It really is. Yeah. I, it really is. I mean, for a conversation like I'm going to have, yeah. If you're uh, if you're going up against some Al Qaeda guy, probably there's more to the story. Well, no, I'm thinking like you know you have to have a tough conversation with an employee. Oh right? yeah. I, um, for me, having a tough conversation with an employee, I want them to feel comfortable enough to admit that there's a mistake. I don't want to have to be like, I know what you did, right? <laughs> I want I want them to be like, so here's what happened. And think like Jordan's not going to implode or explode. There's no, there's no ploding. Right. Right. Imploding <laughs> free. Um, okay. So, so not filling the silence, speaking less. That's 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 simple enough. Yeah. That well, people say it's simple enough, yeah, but right. no. then you're in the moment. You're like, oh crap! I'm going to nervously babble the entire time. It takes a long time to get used to that kind of thing, depending on what you're trying to produce. You know, I think a lot of bosses are really nervous to discipline an employee. Or a team member so they'll just talk the whole time and then be like great good talk don't yeah all right see you later because they don't want to have what they consider to be the awkward exchange so they just turn off the exchange part does that does that kind yeah, of make sense? yeah yeah now can any of this and can any of this translate into the written word the written word like in emails or in marketing for example you know the way that you that you create that sort of probably yeah let me think about this well, yeah, I would say I would say it probably does. I mean, whenever I have to tell somebody or ask somebody something via email that I know they're not going to like, I will do some similar things that I do in person. For example, always giving them a way out is so huge. Um, I'm a I used to be an attorney, so I still am technically. So one of the things that I'll do is I'll say something like somebody will copy a website from us or a web page or something I wrote or like verbatim take something off of our website or a product and use it and instead of going look you have 30 days to or three days to comply I'm gonna file a lawsuit in the state of California you're gonna be so screwed I'm an attorney uh, you're, you should be scared I'm like hey look I realize that what you're looking for is an example of something that you really liked you probably put it there as a placeholder that's totally fine the problem is now Google is picking this up, I got an alert for this. I have no interest in taking this any further. You know, I know being a lawyer myself, how inefficient that process can be. So if you would, just do me a favor and remove this or change it enough so it's not the same thing. And you get a much better reaction than something that's a headbutt. And usually the person will write back and go, 
Oh, how embarrassing. You're right, totally an accident. My VA did this. I didn't even know it was in there, right? So do that in email just like you would in real life. If you're disciplining a kid, right, you don't go, well, I don't know how people parent, but I would imagine, and I don't have kids, so when I talk to younger folks about something where they're in trouble, I'll ask them, hey, did this happen? And they'll say, I didn't do it. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm sure you didn't. You're really, you know, you're a nice boy, but do, I, do you think this happened at all? I don't care who did it. And they're like, oh yeah, I think I saw somebody do that. And you're like, oh, okay, let's fix it, right? You give people a way out. A big grown-ups are the same in their thinking pattern. They just, they're quicker on their feet. They lie better, right, generally. So that is a written tactic, I would say works just as well in person. If you don't care about punishment, which you should not anyway, again, parenting aside, giving people a way out is a great way to get to the bottom of it because you always have to protect ego. What do you mean if you don't care about punishment? Uh, so if you want somebody to admit faults, like, oh yeah, I did this and it was a huge problem, you, you might want to lean into it, like turn the screws a little bit more, but if you just want to solve the problem, then protecting ego is great by giving people that way out. Always giving people that way out. In fact, in everything that I do where I'm, looking at a potential confrontation, I always want to give people a way out, regardless of how badly they've screwed up. And if they, because here's the problem also, if you don't give them a way out, then a lot of people are really attached to being right. So you might end up with somebody who's like, oh crap, if I admit fault, it means something about my identity as like an employee, entrepreneur, husband, wife, whatever. Now you've got them fighting you to protect that. You're not going to win that battle. You're gonna end up losing somebody or have somebody quit because they can't admit that they don't understand something. Like it's such a waste of human capital. So, and I respond, here's, here's another test. If something works on you, go in with that. Like giving me a way out if I screw up, awesome technique. It will work on me 100% of the time. You know, my wife will be like, did you forget this? And I'll be like, no, you never said. She'll be like, here's the text where you replied, yep, on it. And I'm like, right? But if she's like, oh, you know, I think that, um, we both forgot in the car that we were going to do this thing. And I'm like, oh yeah, that was my fault. And she's like, oh, it's fine. Right? It works 100% of the time. You have to protect the ego of the person you're going after. And here's why it's a beautiful technique. If it works on you and you know what's happening in the moment and it still freaking works on you, that is a really good tactic. There is, those are few and far between. Things that will work in real time while you actually know that they're happening. And Cherie's probably full of techniques like this too. But I think any type of like predictive any sort of predictive element of human behavior that works even though you're telling people about it in real time is kind of it's kind of like poetry in motion and i remember when i was in law school telling like doing jury mock jury stuff and telling other people like here's what i'm going to do i'm going to tell the jury this they're going to believe this and this is going to happen and we had this little group of like smart ass lawyer guys uh, that we would just program juries with speech patterns and stuff like that. And I don't mean like hypnosis, but I just mean predicting the exact outcome. And then I'm like, they're gonna come back with the verdict. And when we examine the mock trial jury, which you can't do with a real jury, they're gonna say it's because they trusted this witness, they trusted this lawyer and et cetera. And we would get it a lot. We'd, we'd really nail it a lot of the time because you can predict that human behavior and you can even tell them it's gonna happen in real time. And it's almost like they can't resist it. That, that, type of, that type of speech or that type of persuasion is just like, it's so powerful. And I think that that's, it's like a sales letter. So people read those, they're not like, gee, this is an informant, 
informational website that's totally impartial. They know they're reading a sales letter, but a good sales letter, they'll read the whole thing and they'll be like, I have to buy this now. I need this. That's good persuasive marketing. It doesn't have to pretend that it's, you know the things you see, the bad ones where it's like, oh, I'm Larry King and this is news right now. And it's all about this nutritional supplement. We see through that crap, it's disingenuous. But when you look at a really good piece of marketing, you know it's marketing and you don't care. Does that difference make sense? Yeah. yeah. Anybody have any questions? Joe? The psychopath guy, what was his name? James Fallon. Not Jimmy Fallon. I know. I was the one that spoke at Google Zygeist a few years ago. At what? At Zygeist. I actually don't know. He spoke most recently at, about Vladimir Putin at, believe it or not, PutinCon, because that's a real thing. <laughs> and he was basically diagnosing Vladimir Putin as an obvious psychopath, which shouldn't surprise anybody. And he talks about uh, Clinton and Mandela and all those people, too. Yeah, I, I believe you're right, yeah. But yeah, I haven't I seen those people. He's street. like a crazy-haired yeah. guy that if you saw him not in a suit, you'd probably just cross the street. And he was yeah. talking about Bill Clinton being a psychopath with Bill Clinton. Yeah, in, in fact, the room. Bill was in the room with in, him. In fact, yeah, I asked him about Bill Clinton. And he goes, I'd love to hang out with Bill Clinton. He's my type of guy, if you know what I'm saying. And I was like, yeah, I think I do. <laughs> Unwise as that might have been to say, I think, yeah, that's him. He's awesome. There's got to be some sort of like distinction, though, because there's personality traits, right? And obviously, there's biochemical things in your brain associated with why you have those behaviors. Like psychopathy, you mean? Yeah. yeah, it's a brain condition. That's Absolutely. why you can look at a scan. Of course, yeah. And, and, and the way that people have managed that, and obviously intent, malicious or non-malicious, meaning people that are psychopaths, very good at their jobs. Right, well that's why psychopathy no hasn't been bred out of our society. It's because it's functional. Of course. And that was one of the scary takeaways of the James Fallon episode of the show that I did, because I said, why does this still exist if these are dysfunctional people that have all these things wrong with them that can't hold friendships very well. And he said, because they're really good at being becoming warriors, becoming really top level businessmen. The other problem is that psychopath brains are, I think it's something like 1% of the population, something like that. But it's, a, it's functional a lot of the time or latent. And so what makes a, dark, a dangerous narcissistic psychopath is an abusive childhood or a dangerous childhood. So when you look at inner city areas, to put a little social commentary spin on this, if you look at inner city areas, what you have are a bunch of people, kids, that grow up not being protective, that are not safe, that do not have supervision or anything like that. And so when you have those, those conditions, or you have Guatemala as a whole country, you have Syria, you have Iraq, anybody who has a psychopath brain is gonna make a hard left or right turn and become a, potentially become a dysfunctional narcissistic psychopath because those types of brains survive better in those situations. Well, over time, that becomes a huge problem because if you live in Guatemala and it's total turmoil and chaos, well, psychopath brains thrive. So who reproduces more? Psychopaths. Well, what's hereditary? Psychopathy. Oops. So now you've got the warrior population of psychopaths outbreeding the nonviolent functional members of society and over generations you end up with a hugely disproportionate number of dangerous violent narcissistic psychopaths so when you look at inner city areas and you go what's wrong with these people the answer is a long period of time in which these brains have thrived that it's not just these are good people that have been these are people that could have gone either way a lot of them 
And so when you end up with a dangerous criminal in a prison population, that come, they all come from the same area. Well, it's not their race or ethnicity that does this. It's the fact that these types of people grew up in a certain area. These brain switches were flipped. They reproduced more. Congratulations, we have a warrior society, which is not as glamorous as it sounds. And that's what's gonna happen in places like Syria. That's what's gonna happen in a lot of these dangerous places. Guatemala was the example that James Fallon gave because it has a disproportionate number of psychopath brains among the general population. Scary. Yes. When, when you started Art of Charm, my assumption is that you wanted to serve that kind of single guy, help him get a date demographic. And now that you have the Jordan Carpenter show, what, like, I guess what is, what's at the core, what's at the heart of you and your brand today? Like what fuels yeah. what you do now? So in a way it's kind of a return to home because when I first started the company, 11, 12 years ago, I actually didn't care about teaching guys dating shit at all. I thought it was kind of weak. But it was interesting because I was in my 20s and I thought, well, it's interesting personally. It works really well. And there's the only people who were teaching were like these pickup guys that were such just total fruitcake douchebags. I just hate, I could, could not stand it. So I was like, oh, if, we, if we're like the normal version of this, we have this huge niche. Because all these guys are like, oh yeah, you know, I don't, I, I like this, but I don't want to wear a light up necklace. And I thought, good, we're gonna, be like, we're gonna be like the healthy alternative to all this creepy crap. Well, the problem is over time, it's kind of like being like, no, I'm the good drug dealer. Like nobody cares, nobody believes you. Your branding is too adjacent. So what I had originally started off doing was trying to get ahead of the law game and become a partner at a law firm where I was working. And I knew I could not work everyone because everyone's working 16 hour days, seven days a week. I knew I wasn't gonna make myself smarter magically. So what I was able to do was get in touch with a partner and I thought that, um, I thought he worked from home all the time. And I thought, okay, I'm probably gonna get fired because I don't really know, like all these people are smarter than me. They're all really sharp. If I work from home all the time, then I won't get fired because they won't really notice me as much. So this partner that was never around, I asked him how he was able to work from home so much. And he said, I don't really work from home that often. I just have a lot of relationships and I bring in business for the firm. So I was like, oh, I need to learn how to bring in business for the firm. That's the, that's the new competitive advantage that I'm gonna have. I can't outwork everyone like I did in college. I can't just be smarter than people like I was you know, in middle school or, or high school. I have to have another competitive advantage. And so networking and relationships was what got me out of bed in the morning. So I went to go figure all that stuff out and that was super interesting, worked really well. And what my, nobody gave a crap though. All my friends were like, networking is for old people, you work really long time and then dot, 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 country club network, right? <laughs> but, but when you started going, well, body language, nonverbal communication, and then I'd go out at night to practice all this stuff, my friends were like, how come you're talking to so many women? And I was like, oh, this is how you, this is the cheese whiz that I'm gonna put all over the broccoli. The broccoli is, healthy nonverbal communication, persuasion, influence. The cheese whiz is, by the way, if you do this right, you're gonna have a ton of women around you. And my friends are like, wait, hold on, start over? I missed the first half of the conversation. Now I'm paying attention. So I thought this is gonna be what's gonna be the way to start the company. Then after a while, it just, like I said, it became too much of like the good drug dealer. And I was like, I gotta change brands. This is annoying. A lot of tension inside the company, company rift. So the core focus now is back again to military and corporate training, individuals obviously as well under the advanced human dynamics brand. 
and networking, relationship development, persuasion, influence, but primarily networking and relationship development. Because one, you're never too young or too old to, to put that into practice. Nobody's ever done with it. The most successful people are really good at it. The least successful people are the people that don't try to do it at all. So it's kind of what I found to be one of the, just the determining factors of success. We all know people that are not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but have really good networks and relationships and everyone likes them, super successful. We also know people, at least I do, that are super intelligent and are floundering because they try to do everything themselves or they just can't quite get relationships to stick, they can't get along as well with people, or th even if that's not the case, they're not remedial, they just can't quite create the relationships that they need to make, it, to make themselves successful in their industry. And there's never a disadvantage to it. It's one of the only things that I thought, that I've been doing for a decade, and the only regret I have is not doing more of it earlier. And so I really think that if you're, whether you're fresh out of college, or you're about to hit the C-suite or you're already in it, the one area that we can all improve on is networking and relationship development. And it's also the area, coincidentally, that most people do horribly, especially the people that think they're pretty good at it are the worst. And most people who brand as like, oh, I know everyone, I have a huge Rolodex, I'm the networking guy, they're even more insufferable. So it's like an inverse correlation. So that for me has been an important area to take away because there's not a whole lot of places where you can learn this. When I first started learning about networking and relationship development, I was taking Dale Carnegie classes, all this stuff, and it was like, oh, look him in the eye and have a firm handshake. And I'm like, oh, that's why I'm not getting million dollar law contracts because I don't have a firm handshake. Come on, you're not learning that shit from a guy in a sweater vest at the YMCA. They don't know this stuff either. It's nuanced and nobody knows that nuance. As I don't have to explain this to you, but the nuance is what's lost. The nuance is what is lost. The building of trust, that is what is lost. People have these dumb, like mnemonic devices to remember if someone's kids play tennis. If I remember your kids play tennis, you're gonna give me a million dollar law deal? No. Are you gonna make me a partner because I remembered what kind of flowers your wife likes? No. It's just artificial. So rather than going through the motions, I decided let, like, let's make this real and teach it to people in a way that's accessible and something that's reputable and repeatable it involves habits and not like what you're gonna do is spend the next three months only doing this networking thing. Like that's unrealistic. Most entrepreneurs are like, dude, I got 99 things I gotta do. I'm not gonna try to figure out this new angle. They're, they have five minutes a day if you're lucky. So that's what I have, five minutes a day. Habits and systems, essentially. Back to the... Uh, psychopath thing. Yes, there back was, to the psychopath. <laughs> there, there are like cities or countries right now where there is a disproportionate amount of... Yeah, I mean, I think it's a more theoretical thing because I don't think he's gone and scanned the brain of everybody in Guatemala City, but I think when he looks at general populations, they can go, all right, well, well, let me phrase it this way because I made a misspoke. There is a certain amount of psychopath brains, period. There's, if, if there's a uh, hundred people in this room, one of us is, has a psychopath brain. The difference is if that person was raised by kind, loving parents, it's probably Kayvon. But if, if, that, if that person was raised by loving parents, um, then they're functional. They're, they probably have some sort of weird reckless behavior where we're like, wow, that guy's crazy. Like he races motorcycles and he likes skydiving and all this other stuff. You know, there's gonna be some sort of adrenaline seeking. They, they might not have like, great relationships with the opposite sex. They might have like 
a rocky, troubled past or something, but we're generally like that person. If they had a crappy childhood upbringing, they are dangerous to society at large, and we find that they end up largely causing trouble or end up incarcerated. And then there's like the sociopath brain, which is somebody that does have a sense of morality, but has been so horribly abused as a child that psychopathic traits come out of them. They just don't care about empathizing with others, but they still can, they just don't care. So that the population of psychopaths isn't necessarily greater in cities and countries that have chaos. It's just that the population of psychopaths is kind of like switched, it's activated by their environment in a way that creates a negative outcome for that person and everyone around. So PJ, PJ and Malta, you guys probably know a couple of psychopaths. They're from Guatemala. We are probably. Yeah, there's, there's probably yeah. Oh, you're from Guatemala? <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> Back away slowly. Like, what are the odds? Okay. So you have five minutes with a C level, you know, uh, person in the C suite. You have five minutes to do it. And what are the habits and tactics you're doing? Yeah, if you are already in the room and you're trying to figure out what to do, I would say that it's already too late. But I get what you're trying to do. No, ask. I'm saying like, would you, what, like, what would you tactically do with the C suite too? With like, the C suite. To build habits? I guess, well, the question is, if you're already, you said you have five minutes with a C-suite, what do you do? If you're in the room already, you're already too late to build a habit or a system in the moment. No, no, he's saying you're working with, the, like, you're, you're coaching the C-suite yeah. guys. Oh, I yeah. got you, got you, okay. So you don't have, you I don't have the, I'm going to go meet 30 people in MLM my life, like, uh, selling a side bear. Right, right, right. For all my friends that are listening to this on the podcast. Thank you. you sold that to me. I love, yeah. I love, so, that's my favorite thing to hate on. Exactly. So, <laughs> you got five minutes, and we're hiring you. You said you got five minutes to work with them, because they're attention spans, they're... Yeah, essentially, I will never try to go into a C-suite and be like, you need to hire me for this, uh, for yourself. Whenever, it depends on the audience always, but generally, if I'm speaking to somebody in a position of power, I'm selling them a service for the people that work for them, because, of course, they already know this stuff. So I, I will simply play to what they believe are their strengths. And the way that I elicit that is one, by talking with them ideally beforehand or doing a crap load of research about them. Like if I watch a talk from somebody who is an executive, generally I can find out what they think they're really good at and what they want to be known as good at. And I will just reinforce that while highlighting the perceived lack of those same esteemed qualities in those around them. And that's what I will pitch them on hiring. Does that make sense everybody? So if yeah, I'm- that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, so if, I, <laughs> if someone's like, I'm a visionary innovator, I'm like, then the angle is, don't you just hate that all the people around you don't, they lack vision. And they're like, oh my God, I <laughs> <laughs> You get it. People lack vision, you understand. <laughs> so I will simply go, look, these are the, this is the way that we can train the people around you to, and I would never train somebody out of vision, but I would go for that particular angle because they're always going to agree with that because everybody who thinks they're really good at something is always going to see they're, we're comparing ourselves to other people. The reason I know I'm good at this is because I know that those around me are not as good in, or so I perceive at that same skill set. So I will simply sell that skill set as a service to the people around them to make them better. And that's what they're looking for. No, very few people are going to be self-aware enough. And even if they are, they're often going to have that ego attached. Very few people are going to go, I am really terrible at building relationships. Because what I hear most often, especially from like entrepreneur types are, I'm already really good at networking and relationships. And I'm like, oh, cool. So 
what are your habits that you do every day to build relationships? And then they're like, oh, well, you know, I don't do it as much anymore because I have kids, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay, so you don't need to do all of the things that made your business great because you had a child? That makes zero sense. So like people will always have this thing like, oh, I'm always, I'm really good at this. And when I was teaching guys to be more charismatic or outgoing or whatever for the purposes of dating, nobody was like, I need this. They were all like, my friends, oh my God, they're the worst. They are the worst, but you know, I read this book online, this ebook, so I'm awesome. I, I won't show you now though, because I'm tired. <laughs> like, I'm just gonna sit here and look inside my beard glass because I'm tired. But my friends, they desperately need what it is you have to offer. So I actually learned those types of sales techniques from making the mistake of trying to tell guys where they could improve because we don't want to hear it, generally. And that holds true. The higher you go on the food chain, self-awareness is not correlated with success as you guys all know, right? You don't necessarily see somebody at the top and go, wow, that person is so introspective. When we hear about people like, actually I shouldn't probably mention any names because this is going on the internet, but when you hear about some of these super high level entrepreneurs, you also hear from their assistants or people that work closely with them. You're not hearing, oh, you know what's really great about such and such? He is really self-aware. You hear them say that they're self-aware themselves, which indicates to me that they are not, um, because self-aware people generally don't talk about how self-aware they are, but you will see that the people around them are like, no, this is <laughs> not. And you're not going to convince somebody like that that they need what you have. You know, there's probably, you're, I, we talked with you earlier, you're a physician or a chiropractor or something like that, you're some sort of body work person. Is this a passion of yours that we happened to step on earlier? Okay, I thought you were talking about swelling. And, coach. Okay. Because you were helping him with his swollen foot, so I was I was wondering if you were in. I'm trained athletes for me. Gotcha. Okay, so so there's going to be a certain type of person that is just not going to listen to anything that you say. And anybody who teaches people diet, nutrition, exercise, probably half their job is not like, oh, I just need to tell my clients what to eat and they'll do it. It's like no, they they're not going to listen to you, right? You can't sell them what to eat and what to do. You have to get them to actually execute on it, which is like what Peter was talking about with accountability. It's not like those guys don't know what to do. He's got better systems, yes, but what he what they don't have is the ability to actually stick to the plan. So we're all selling the same thing. And I think the higher you go, the more resistant a lot of people are gonna be because nobody wants to believe that they have weaknesses, but they will sure as hell believe that people around them have weaknesses and that's what you that's what you sell. We have, to, we have to cut here. Yeah, um, and no I know problem. that Peter Fesh would be asking afterwards. Um, yeah. So that was awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Less Doing podcast. At Less Doing, we help entrepreneurs who have opportunity in excess of what their infrastructure can support to set up systems and processes that empower a team to ultimately make themselves more replaceable. That way, they can optimize, automate, and outsource everything in their businesses in order to be more effective. If you want to find out more about Less Doing, the podcast, the blog, the books, and all of the wonderful programs we offer to help you get from where you are to where you know you want to be, go to lessdoing.com slash podcast and check out our OAO blueprint so you can get started today.